Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Tonight is Friday, November 9th, 2018. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and the enemy of all Jews, and thank you for listening. This evening we shall present part 7, the final part of Clifton's Identifying the Biblical Beast of the Field series. I am not yet certain what I will present next week, but perhaps, as it is my desire, and if it is Yahweh's will, I will get back to my commentary on the Gospel of John. We still have a lot of moving and other tasks to do after the recent hurricane, and I just can't seem to get caught up. It's probably not going to happen for, for months. As long as 18 centuries ago, certain men who were highly influenced by Jews, as well as by pagan Greek philosophies, had become Christians and began writing voluminous works, many of which have been preserved to our time, although no one can claim with any great degree of confidence that they are without corruption as we have them today. A couple of the more notable of these men are Justin Martyr and Clement of Alexandria, whom I only discuss as examples while it is always beneficial to see how some early Christians understood the faith of Christ, we must understand their writings in the context in which they were made, and can never accept them as replacements for Scripture in the formulation of Christian doctrine. They were never even universally recognized or disseminated for that purpose in their own time, and they were often disagreed with by other early Christian writers. But in these aspects they were not alone. Tertullian, Irenaeus, and others also shared this same plight, and deservedly so. There was no commonly accepted doctrine among the Christian assemblies until it was forced for political expediency beginning in the early 4th century at Nicaea and culminating with the decrees of Justinian and the formation of the papacy in the 6th century which in those decrees the Bishop of Rome was elevated to primacy and the Bishop of Constantinople to the second place among all the bishops of the empire. Five hundred years later, the Bishop of Constantinople led the first Protestant revolt against Rome. Justin, Justin Mater, was a Platonist and influences from Plato are evident throughout his writings. He labored to label Plato and Socrates as pre-Christ or unknowing Christians because they espoused certain concepts. 
But in his surviving writings, Justin did not cite Paul of Tarsus and seems not to have even known of Paul, although he made some statements which were similar to some of those expressed by Paul. There are many errant claims based on Justin's evident ignorance of Paul, but the rational explanation for this is found in Scripture, in the book of Acts. The Apostle James told Paul, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Judeans there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law, and they are informed of thee, that thou teachest all the Judeans which are among the Gentiles, or among the nations, to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. In chapter 22 of the book of Acts, at verses 21 and 22, it is also clear that the Judeans despise Paul for taking the gospel of Christ abroad to the nations, which in Paul's own words were later described as the scattered tribes of ancient Israel. The Judaizers had won over the Christians of Judea at an early time, and later sects, such as the Ebionites, later sects in Judea, continued to reject Paul on that basis. Justin, being a Samaritan, a native Samaritan who also learned Christianity from contemporary Judeans, must have also been thusly influenced. It's no surprise in his environment that he would not have known or have studied the writings of Paul. Clement of Alexandria was a Gnostic. He was filled with the influences of the wisdom of this world, found in the pagan and mystic philosophies, which the apostles of Christ had clearly rejected. And he sought to put a Christian facade on those philosophies. He knew of and cited Paul's epistles, but his was a different attitude entirely. He sought to repackage Christianity in a way to make it appealing to his fellow Gnostics. So he mixed those pagan philosophies and Jewish elements into his teachings. In my opinion, Philo of Alexandria, a Judean, was an example of a proto-Gnostic, and Clement had as much or more in common with Philo than he had with Paul of Tarsus or with Jesus Christ. To these men, who were already convinced that the promises and covenants were exclusive to Jews, Christianity was therefore a universal religion contrary to the Old Testament, and they preached universalism and replacement theology. However, Paul of Tarsus, right to the end of his ministry, taught that the promises in Christ were made to the twelve tribes of Israel and to the nations which are descended from the seed of Abraham through Jacob, 
those same tribes. Both James and Peter supported these teachings. But they are not repeated by any early Christian writer from the second century. So it can indeed be demonstrated that Christianity was corrupted from its original intents and purpose at an early time by men who were very much influenced by the Jews. These are the sort of men whose writings the later organized church had chosen to preserve. However, as we have demonstrated here in other places, at least some Christians did follow the original Christianity of the apostles, such as those who had produced the Book of Odes, which is found in the Codex Alexandrinus. We did a commentary here last December on the Christian identity liturgy in the Book of Odes. For these reasons and others, we choose to understand Christianity not from early so-called church fathers or from any late church tradition, but from the apostles themselves and from the prophets and historical writings which preceded them. I've been treating some of my orthodox critics throughout this series. I recently saw some of my orthodox critics in a conversation make the claim that Paul of Tarsus upheld orthodox church tradition in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 where he admonished his readers to stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. The claim is patently absurd, Brandon Ritchie. Paul of Tarsus was not a Platonist or a follower of Aristotle, as many of the so-called church fathers were steeped in Plato and or Aristotle. Paul of Tarsus did not set up an orthodox priesthood, which rather suddenly appears in Christian writings in the early 4th century. Paul of Tarsus did not promote the making of prayers to so-called saints, but rather he taught that the saints were Christians in general, and that they should all pray to God. Paul of Tarsus certainly did not support the adoration of icons, which are truly graven images, and which many early Christian writers, including Justin Martyr, clearly despised. In Ephesians chapter 6 and in Philippians chapter 1, Paul encouraged Christians to pray for the saints, but never to any saints. The traditions which Paul upheld were those found in Scripture and not in any pagan practices or philosophies. The traditions of the modern Orthodox Church are actually, for the most part, pagan in nation, in, in, I'm sorry, pagan in nature, among which are priests and icons and prayers made to men. Those things, they're pagan if they're not Levitical priests 
and the the Levitical priesthood, according to Paul in Hebrews chapter 7, was replaced only by Christ himself. This same group of my Orthodox critics have now accused me of rewriting prophecy and of rewriting scripture to suit my own whims, particularly in Paul's epistle to the Galatians. Of course, nothing can be further from the truth. They assail my Christianian New Testament translation on the basis of their own church doctrine, having confidence in the false premise that their doctrine is correct, and they do not address it on the basis of the word meanings and grammar of the original Koine Greek language. If, apart from any doctrine, my translation can be proven to have transgressed the bounds of acceptable interpretation, then would I repent. But if not, then they must concede that it is acceptable and discuss the reasoning behind my interpretation without their ad hominem insults and reliance on their own traditions, which are indeed only the traditions of men. This they cannot do. They are brainwashed with replacement theology, a theology which did not belong to the apostles of Christ, but which developed after the persecutions of the true apostolic church, which took place throughout the end of the first and the beginning of the second centuries. This period is called the Age of Shadows by Jesse Hurlbut in his 19th century Story of the Christian Church, a time in which no teachings or accounts survive from any of the immediate successors of Paul of Tarsus. Instead, in the Judaized Christianity of Justin Martyr and Clement of Alexandria, replacement theology began to develop, and words such as seed, son, father, house, and inheritance, among others, were assigned philosophical meanings wherever they appeared in the writings of the Old Testament. I'm sorry, of the New Testament. Meanings which were not the intention of the original authors. Replacement theology and the universal interpretation of Christianity which it necessitates have very successfully served the purposes of the Jews. Is it not Jews who have promoted among non-Jews both egalitarianism and the imagined universal brotherhood of man? Is it not Jews who, on this same basis, insist upon equality and so-called civil rights for all races, and the destruction of borders, racial homogeneity, and national identity. It certainly is Jews who have promoted these things, and this is also what was introduced to the Judaized churches that first formed the organized so-called Christian religion, a religion which, whether Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox, 
was never truly Christian because it denies and perverts so many plain statements by Yahshua Christ and his prophets and apostles. The new covenant was made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Genetic families. Paul expressed the hope I'm sorry, Paul expressed the sentiment that the hope in Christ was for the twelve tribes of Israel, genetic entities. James wrote his epistle to the twelve tribes scattered abroad. Again, genetic entities. If the Jew would subvert Christianity it fully suits him to subvert it for the purpose of universalism so that he could ultimately destroy the people of the promise. And that has been his long-term goal for many centuries and it is successful in these denominational Christian policies which all began with replacement theology contrary to the teachings of the apostles. The word orthodox does not appear in scripture. The word Catholic does not appear in scripture. The applications of those words after the fourth century is not even the same as how they were originally used by the early Christian writers of the second and third centuries. The universal churches have served the purpose of the Jews with their egalitarianism and false concepts of racial equality for many centuries. Reconstruction is a Jewish program which began long before the 19th century and the Christian churches which survived the persecutions of three centuries were already Judaized in many of their doctrines and in stark contrast to the teachings of the original apostles. The entire Bible story is a story of reconstruction. Yahweh God is a racist who demands that men preserve the integrity of his creation. But the devil wants to elevate beasts into the position of men so that he can prom promote miscegenation and the corruption of God's creation. Anyone who embraces those organized churches which support these age-old Jewish objectives are victims of this satanic program of reconstruction. If we are going to survive as a distinct race, we must repudiate this program in its entirety. We must be radicals, returning to the root of our faith and our existence. The true meaning of the word radical is apparent in the fields of linguistics and mathematics. In language studies, it means to denote or relate to the roots of a word, to its most basic meaning. And in math, it means relating to or forming the root of a number or quantity.
As Christians of white European heritage, our root is Christ. He came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And if we are not those people, then he is a liar and Paul of Tarsus was wrong. But if we are those people, we have an obligation to obedience to God and to remain a separate and distinct people. With this, we shall present Identifying the Beast of the Field, the Biblical Beast of the Field, Part 7. The primary objective of this series of essays by Clifton Emmeheiser has been to demonstrate that none of the Hebrew words used in Scripture to describe animals are technical terms describing other races of presumed people or hominids as two-legged creatures are often called. So while Hebrew terms such as che or behemoth can be used to describe people and are indeed used for that purpose on some occasions, they are not technical labels for any sort of people. And through them alone, we have no reason to believe that any races of people were intended by the descriptions of the creation accounts of animals in the accounts of Genesis. Rather, after making his proof of that assertion, Clifton went on to discuss how, in the earliest times, other races of people those who were on the fringes of society, or even outside of the general habitation of the early white race, were described as satyrs, devils, or tailless apes. Then, in the most recent part of the series, in Part 6, Clifton returned to his earlier subject in order to discuss the origin of the heresy that Yahweh created all the races of man as it is expressed in some circles of what we call Christian identity. It was Pastor Alan Campbell of Belfast who Clifton first cited as having errantly claimed that the Hebrew term che was a technical term for a negro. But then a friend and reader pointed out to him that Campbell most likely got his errant information from Nord Davis, who made the same statements which Campbell had over ten years earlier. Campbell, obviously, never fact-checked the statements made by Davis before incorporating them into his own sermons. And now many other so-called pastors and presumed teachers just as blindly follow Campbell's adopted mistakes. <laughs> now Clifton will summarize some of this and more in his own words and add more proof of his basic assertions as we present the final part of this series, Identifying the Beast of the Field, Part 7, by Clifton Emmeheiser. In Parts one through six of this series, Clifton says, I have addressed the many errors in identifying who are 
the beast of the field. With this paper, I will review some of the main points we have discovered concerning this biblical expression from various sources. In part number three, I gave evidence evidence from Adam Clark's Bible Commentary, Volume 1, Volume 1 of 6, on pages 47 through 50, under his Notes on Chapter 3, referring of course to Genesis Chapter 3, and especially on the terms Nakash and Beast at Genesis 3.1, that the devil and the ape had the same name, or at least the same label in the Arabic language. Also that Satan is equivalent to orangutan in that same language. Clark went to great lengths to try to make sense out of this passage, even going to the Arabic as many Hebrew scholars do when needing to understand a critical word. And actually the word comparisons Clifton transmitted here are from Adam Clark and are from Arabic, but the strong possibility is that they predate the Arabic language, which itself was derived from Aramaic and other related languages. Clark resorted to Arabic simply because our Hebrew lexicon is not complete, which Clifton noted other Hebrew scholars have often done the Hebrew lexicon being limited to the terms which are found in the Hebrew Old Testament hardly represents the complete language. So, Clifton continues, summing up Clark's findings on this subject, it boils down to, and he quotes his earlier paper, we have seen kanas, an Arabic word, akhnas, and kanus, other Arabic words, which are all very, very similar, signify a creature of the ape or satyr kind. We have seen that the meaning of the root is to lay hid, seduce, slunk away, etc., and that kanas means devil, as the inspirer of evil and seducer from God and truth. And then Clark refers us to Gallius and Wilmay, two earlier writers, I presume. It therefore appears to me that a creature of the ape or orangutan kind is here intended. Is it not strange that the devil and the ape should have the same name, derived from the same root, and that root is so very similar to the word in the text, the word Nakash, which is found in the Hebrew of the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. Clifton responds, Then I went on in part 3 to show how Clark was in agreement with the Dead Sea Scrolls. From the book The Dead Sea Scrolls, a new translation by Michael Wise, Martin Abegg Jr. and Edward Cook on page 247 a translation of the scroll designated 1Q23, meaning it's the arbitrarily assigned scroll number 23 from cave number 1 at Qumran. I believe there were 11 caves in which scrolls were found. 
and they all have a similar label attached to them. And this is fragments one and six. 200 donkeys, 200 asses, 200 rams of the flock, 200 goats, 200 beasts of the field, from every animal, from every bird, for miscegenation, which basically describes the sins of the fallen angels in the rebellion from God, which is found in the Enoch literature generally. The point which Clifton is trying to make is this. If in the earliest legends outside of the Bible, the races of presumed people who are on the fringes of, or outside of, white society, are described as devils, apes, or satyrs, people which are part animal and part human. And if some of the earliest Hebrew literature, even if it is apocryphal literature, informs us that the so-called fallen angels had committed miscegenation of this sort in their rebellion against God, then the myths and traditions certainly are related. And in this, the origin of the non-white races is made evident, since they are certainly not explained in the Bible itself. In many places, especially in the New Testament, the scriptures agree even if they do not describe it explicitly. So Clifton continues, These fragments are from the oldest known manuscripts of the Book of Giants, reputedly written by Enoch, whom we are told walked with God, and who is not, for God took him, as it says in Genesis 5.24. Here a lot of people may protest that there is no proof that the Enoch literature was actually written by Enoch. However, the Apostle Jude cited writing from Enoch, a line found in that same literature, and therefore the disciple of Christ esteemed what he was citing to have been from the patriarch Enoch. Many of the other concepts which Jude expresses in the body of that short epistle are also similar to writings of Enoch. So there must have been a legitimate work of Enoch that was known to the apostles and that is most likely represented by the portions of Enoch found in the Dead Sea Scrolls which are native to the same nation and time of the apostles. Therefore, this evidence cannot be lightly dismissed. Continuing with Clifton, also in part three in this series, I presented further evidence that Adam Clark is not the only one to declare that satyr means ape from a Greek-English lexicon by Liddell and Scott on page 1232. On the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew word satyr, we find the following definition. Honokentora, or Honokentoras, masculine or feminine, a kind of tailless ape, as the word was used by the ancient Greek writer Achelion, a kind of demon haunting wild places, citing the Septuagint in Isaiah chapters 13 and 34. 
Clifton says, Notice especially Isaiah 34.14. What better description could be given of a negroid than a tailless ape? I don't want to leave the impression that I believe or promote the premise that it was a negroid who seduced Eve in the third chapter of Genesis, as that is also a mistaken presumption. At Genesis chapter 3 verse 1, the beast is Strong's number 2416, or Che, whereas when a person of a non-white race is meant in scripture, it is 929, Bahama, as an idiom, and that is certainly always the case. Here Clifton is not saying that the serpent was one such beast, or that the serpent is being compared to negroes, but only that the serpent is indeed being compared to animals in general. So he continues, One good example of four-footed quadrupeds, Strong's number 929, or Bahama, being idiomatic for the non-white races, is found at Leviticus chapter 20, verses 15 and 16, and Clifton, citing that passage, And if a man lies with the beast, he shall surely be put to death, and ye shall slay the beast. And if a woman approaches unto any beast, and lies down thereto, thou shalt kill the woman and the beast, and they shall surely be put to death, their blood shall be upon them. Clifton exclaims, Four-footed quadrupeds have sex standing upright on their feet. As I have said where Clifton cited this passage earlier, it certainly can refer to any sort of beast, whether it has two legs or four legs. However, non-Adamic so-called people certainly fall into that category. The word lie is only a euphemism for sexual relations in this instance. So the position of the act really does not matter. People have been having sex with four-legged animals, quite unfortunately, since the dawn of time. Returning to Clifton, in part four of this series, I cited the 1894 ninth edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, volume 21, pages 336 and 37, under the topic Seder, where they stated, in part, the in the earlier Greek art, they appear as old and ugly, much like wild apes. Later Greek art idealized the satyr to be attractive and beautiful, very much like Negroes were once depicted as ugly or unseemly in Western art, and are now depicted as angels of light in Jewish media. Returning to Clifton, another witness is from the World Scope Encyclopedia, Volume 10, under the topic Satyrs, and it states in part, The Satyr of Praxiteles at Athens is a famous specimen of Greek sculpture. Pliny used the word to indicate a kind of ape. Pliny was well learned in natural history. The satyr of Praxiteles was depicted as an attractive young man, but Pliny certainly seemed to be much more sensible 
and realistic. Continuing with Clifton, Nelson's New Illustrated Bible Dictionary by Youngblood, Bruce, and Harrison on page 59 under Animals of the Bible, or Ape, says in part, Some commentaries suggest that Isaiah's reference to satyrs who dance and cry to their fellows would fit the dog-faced baboon honored by the Egyptians, referring to Isaiah chapters 13 and 34, where the King James Version has satyrs and the NIV, the New International Version, has wild goats. Where Clifton first made this citation, we stated that the comparison of the dog-faced baboon to the Negro certainly cannot be overlooked. The later Egyptians, at least those of the post-Nubian period of the 25th dynasty, believed this creature, the dog-faced baboon, to be the inventor of writing and the scribe of the gods. There we cited an article for a dog-faced baboon amulet from the 26th dynasty, which is found at the British Museum. Why wouldn't the post-Nubian Egyptians desire to rewrite history and turn the Adamic white inventors of writing into a dog-faced baboon? They do the same thing all the time today. Continuing again with Clifton, there are two Hebrew words translated as devils in the Old Testament, and they are Strong's Numbers 8163 and 7700. 8163. The original pronunciation of this word is a little difficult to attain. It's spelled basically S apostrophe Y R, if I had to change the letters to English letters. Sa'ir or Sa'ir as Strong's transliterates it. It's certainly the ancestor of the Greek word Seder and of the English word Seder and other words found in the West. 8163 is from 8175 shaggy as a noun, a he-gold, he-goat, I'm sorry, by analogy, a fawn and the King James Version in various places translates it as devil, goat, hairy, kid, as a goat, rough, or satyr. And 7700 is the word shed. Strong's transliterates it even as shade. From 7736, a demon, as malignant. And the King James Version translates it as devil. It's not a very common word in the Old Testament, however. This later word is probably the origin of our English words shade and shadow. One definition for the English word shade, given by the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, is a disembodied spirit, a ghost. Clifton continues and says, inasmuch as 7700 is from Strong's number 7736, and that the theological work, word book of the Old Testament by R. Layard 
Harris gives a better definition, I will cite him. And Harris says, Undoubtedly, the Hebrew shed is to be connected with the Babylonian word shedu, and I would certainly agree. Babylonian being Aramaic, a demon, either good or evil. In pagan religions, the line between gods and demons is not a constant one. And of course, one people's god is another people's demon. There are demons who are beneficent and gods who are malicious. Generally speaking, though, a demon was conceived as being less powerful than a god. And that's how the Greeks viewed demons. In Mesopotamian thought, the Shadu was a supernatural protective power for whose presence the gods were invoked. Specifically, the function of Shadu may have been to represent the vitality of the individual, his sexual potency. Clifton says, like the rock concerts of today, I would suggest that the motive back then for worshipping false gods was for sexual potency. And as I explained in Broken Cisterns, and as Clifton has probably also mentioned frequently, the pagan religions were premised upon fertility and sexual acts performed in rituals. Marriages at altars were originally sexual unions conducted in pagan temples. And many people take the same license today at rock concerts, in bars, and in other godless venues. Clifton now cites some of the passages which mention devils from these words, Seder and Shade. At Leviticus chapter 17, verse 7, number 8163 is translated as devils where it says, And they shall no more offer their sacrifices unto devils, that word Seder, after whom they have gone a-whoring. This shall be a statute forever unto them throughout their generations. At Second Chronicles 11.15, 81.63, or Seder, is translated as devils. For Jeroboam and his sons had cast them off, from executing the priest's office under Yahweh. And he ordained him priests for the high places, and for the devils, and for the calves which he made. At Genesis 27:11, and in, and in that instance, devils is also Seder. At Genesis 27:11, Strong's number 8163, or Seder, is translated as hairy, or hairy man. And Jacob said to Rebekah his mother, Behold, Esau my brother is a hairy man, the word Seder, and I am a smooth man. At Genesis 27:23, the Hebrew word Seder, or 81:63, is translated as hairy man. And he, Isaac, discerned him not, because his hands were hairy. As his brother Esau's hands, so he blessed him. Here it must be stated that not every occurrence of the word from which we have Seder, which is Strong's number 8163, refers to a devil. 
Strong's original definition for this word is from 8175, shaggy, as a noun, a he-goat. The word is derived by strong from a similar-sounding verb, which means to storm. We would instead derive it from the noun for hair, which is also similarly spelled, and found at Strong's numbers 8177 and 8181. The quality that the words have in common is roughness, and the word from which Mount Seer a rough craggy mount is named is also in the group at Strong's number 8165. Many words in this group are spelled alike and only distinguished by the added vowel pointing of the Masoretic rabbis. So they are not really different words at all. So Seder primarily refers to a rough creature and for that reason, it was used of both goats and devils, which is often clear from the context, but also of rough or hairy men. In my opinion, the name of the Latin storm god, Saturn, was also derived from these same words. This word which Clifton is illustrating Strong's number 8163 appears in the King James Version of Esau as Harry twice in Genesis chapter 27, where other occurrences of the word Harry, for example, of Esau again in Genesis chapter 25, and of Elijah the prophet in 2 Kings chapter 1, are from Strong's number 8181. One of the words which means hair. Clifton continues with his list, again referring to satyrs or devils. At Isaiah 13.21, Strong's number 8163, satyr is translated as satyrs, being plural. But the wild beasts of the desert shall lie there, and their houses shall be full of doleful creatures and owls shall dwell there, and satyrs shall dance there. At Isaiah 34.14, satyr, number 8163, is translated as satyr. The wild beasts of the desert shall also meet with the wild beasts of the island, and the satyr shall cry to his fellow. The screech owl also shall rest there and find for herself a place of rest. The first passage of Isaiah, which Clifton mentions here, is an oracle against Babylon, and the second against the land of Edom. We would think that all of the so-called people dwelling in those places today are satyrs or devils, and thus the prophecy is fulfilled. The Hebrew term, which the King James Version renders as screech owl in the second passage, is Lilith, which in later Judean and Jewish lore is a female demon. Interestingly again, the owl was the symbol of Ishtar, who was often depicted by the Babylonians, 
as standing with owls, and was later taken by the Ionian Greeks as the symbol of Athena, and for that reason the symbol for Athens, the city, where in the 5th century BC it was used on the coins which the city had minted. Continuing with Clifton's citations, at Deuteronomy 32.17, the word shed, number 7700, is translated as devils. They sacrificed unto devils, not to God, to devils whom they knew not, to new gods that newly came up, whom your fathers feared not. At Psalm 106, verse 37, Strong's number 7700, or shed, is translated as devils. And they served their idols, from verse 36, which were a snare unto them. Yea, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters unto devils. Surely Paul had these eight passages in mind when he wrote the following at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20. But I say that the things which the... And Clifton has a notation referring to lost Israelites, because that's the nations which Paul is talking about. The things which the nations sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that you should have fellowship with devils. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul connects this pagan worship to the worshiping of angels, ostensibly to the fallen angels who were the source of the world's false religions. The connections are also made by the pagans themselves in surviving Akkadian, Babylonian, and Greek literature. An overarching theme of the Old Testament scripture is that the acceptance of these rough beasts from the margins of society leads to idolatry and the worship of their false gods and ultimately also to miscegenation. Now Clifton is going to discuss the ultimate consequences of that idolatry in summary with what he has presented throughout this series. He says, Today we as Israel are worshipping devils as we did in biblical times. And these devils are surely tailless apes. The altars where we worship them are the television sets throughout our homes and other places. And the devils are the tailless apes running up and down the various football fields, basketball courts, or in other sporting endeavors. Not sports only, but this also includes almost every kind of production broadcast on television today. It seems that it is impossible to have any sort of entertainment without having a tailless ape in it. The circumstances today prove our interpretation of the Bible to be consistent and therefore correct beyond all reasonable doubt. As we see the Jewish-dominated media and entertainment industry promote every non-white beast along with open borders and endless immigration, we should understand that this is Satan gathering the nations against our Adamic race in the last days.
that this is the serpent which releases a flood in its final attempt to destroy the woman of the revelation who represents the true people of God. Today, if one even distinguishes differences among the races, one is demonized by these same demons. But it was not always that way, as Clifton proceeds to explain. But it wasn't always this way in America, as back in 1880, a professor of geology and paleontology at the University of Michigan by the name of Alexander Winchell, or Winchell, wrote a book titled Pre-Adamites. I will quote him from pages 68 to 73 in a chapter titled Principal Types of Mankind. We will be speaking about this book at length, and of course a PDF copy will be available in the links along with this presentation. Among black-skinned peoples, we recognize no less than four races. Besides their black or very dark skins, they all have narrow heads, dolichocephalus, a term which means having long heads, but they are only relatively long because they are so thin, and projecting or prognathist jaws. They possess long thigh bones and sometimes also long arms. The shanks are lean, the pelvis is obliquely set, and the secondary sexual characters are deficient. In other words, except for the primary sex organs, Winchell is asserting that secondary sensual sexual characteristics between the male and female of these races are difficult to distinguish. So he says, the Negro race, the Negro race is further distinguished by short crisp hair, each fiber of which is flattened like the fiber of wool. The beard is almost wanting. The lips are thick and prominent. The mouth often enormously large. The forehead retreating and the nose flattened. The skin is thick and velvety, and emits an exhalation of a pungent, unpleasant, and characteristic odor. Most Negroes also have meager thighs, calfless legs, elongated heels, and archless feet. The home of the Negro is all Africa from the southern border of the Sahara to the country of the Hottentots and Bushmen except some portions on the extreme east and a belt along the tenth parallel of latitude north, extending from near the west coast nearly to the center of the continent, which regions have fallen into the possession of hybrid Hamites, interspersed with a few hybrid with fewer hybrid Semites. And of course these would be considered Arabs wandering Sabians, Lubin, Ethiopians, and Egyptians, and others who had mixed with Negroes at an early time. Arab traders were bringing Negroes as far east as China, Malaysia, and the Philippines long before Europeans reached those areas in the colonial period. Continuing with Clifton's citation of Winchell, 
The Bantu family of Negroes occupies the known portion of South Africa from the parallel of 20 degrees south to that of 5 degrees north. The eastern tribes include the people of Zanzibar and the Mozambique nations from the coast to Lake Nyasa. The Betuans, which mysteriously looks like a Hebrew term, the Betuans are farther inland and the Kaffir tribes belong to the east. The West Coast Bantus include the Bunda nations, the Ovambo, the Banaguela or Bengals, and the Angola or Angolans. A second division embraces the Congos, and a third in the northwest includes the tribes of the Gaboon and the Cameroon Mountains. The Sudan family of Negroes stretches from the Atlantic coast to the valley of the Upper Nile, occupying all the space between the desert and the Bantus, except the belt held by the Fulba, who will be mentioned presently. Among them we find, in the West, tribes speaking the dialects of Joruba and Dahomey, those on the Gold Coast, and the Ashantis, Fantis, and Mandingos. Between the Gambia and the Senegal live the Jalafers, whom he cites as the finest of the Negro races. Between the Niger and Bornu is spoken the Hausa language, known to Herodotus. I don't know how he knows that or the source for that. The tribes of Bornu and those speaking the Teda stretch farther eastward to the border of the Libyan desert. The lowest of all Negro tribes are found in the region of the White or Western Nile. Here are the Shaluk and Dinka tribes, which in physical characters also closely resemble the Fundi Negroes of the Blue or Eastern Nile, the two branches of the Nile which are below the fourth cataract, or I should say above the fourth cataract to be proper, south of the island of Elephantine. The later founded the kingdom of Senar, They have very long crimped hair, a skin possessing a strong odor, and a color varying from brown to blue-black, with the exception of the hand and the sole of the foot, which are of a flesh-red color. The fingernails are also of an agate brown. The lips are fleshly, but not intumescent or swollen. The nose straight or slightly aquiline as among many Negroes of southern and western Africa. It is extremely probable that the Fundi are of mixed race. In the district of the Niger, stretching along the tenth parallel of latitude, are found the Fulba of Fula, a peculiar people who have sometimes been described as a red race. By surrounding nations they are called Peuls, Fulaha, Fulani, Fulatas, and Fulan. This is evidently a reference to the so-called Falasha, and we have Falasha Jews, or Ethiopian Jews. 
as it seems to me. They have a reddish, and that's Jews mixed with these Falasha people. They have a reddish, yellowish, or brownish color, and oval face, a long and somewhat arched nose, teeth vertical, lips somewhat thin, figure slim and tall. The hair is black, long, glossy, and reaching to the shoulders. They are shepherds and nomads, and in religion, professors of Islam. They are said by Barth to have come from the East at a remote period. I would rather think that they're Jews mixed with Negroes. According to other authorities, they are known to have reached this region from the North. Friedrich Mueller, who places them in ethnic association with the Nuba, or Nubians, refers them collectively to the Northeast. In any event, they are not an African type, and cannot be cited as proof of the diversification of the Negro race. Features, language, religion, amid traditions, point them out as a hybridized colony of Hamites from Barbary, in his estimation. The Nuba are probably hybridized Hamites from the East Coast. On all the borders of these nations is, is noticed a blending with the Negro type. The records of ancient Egypt indicate a mixing of Egyptians with Nubians nearly as long ago as the time of Abraham and Egyptian pharaohs, at least from the 19th century, kept harems of Nubian women in the south. Again, continuing with Winchell, the other black race of Africa is that of the Hottentots and Bushmen, they occupy the southern parts of the continent. The common characters of these two families are the tufted matting of the hair of the head, a scantiness of hair upon other parts of the body, moderate prognoth- prognothism, meaning a moderate extruding of the lower jaw, laterally projecting cheekbones, full lips, and a narrow opening of the eyes. The Hottentot family, styled by themselves, Khoikhoin, their name for themselves, speak a language of great ethnological interest, since, according to Mulfot, Lepsius, Pruner Bay, Max Mueller, Whitney, and Bleak, all of them etymologists or linguists, it presents some resemblance to the language of ancient Egypt. Though other philological authorities dissent from this view, the existence of an opinion of this kind, so well endorsed, proves that the Khoikhoin are in possession of a language which has reached a remarkable development. Whether these people are descendants, with more or less extraneous mixture, from the ancient Egyptians, or have lived in communication with them, or some other civilized people, are questions which naturally arise for discussion. It is not impossible that even so rude people as the Khoikhoin should have created a language as complex and polished as that which they employ, though it seems more probable that they present today the mere ruins of a former better condition or the reminiscences the, the reminiscences of ancient contact with a higher race, probably 
fallen angels. The Bushman family, of course, Winchell would not have gone there. The Bushman family, also called Boyesmen or Botchesmen of the Dutch, or from the Botchesmen of the Dutch. One variation is Boyesmen, and another variation is Bushmen and each variation drops different consonants, right? I can't even pronounce the original Dutch, but you'll be able to see the spelling as this presentation is posted at Christagenia. The Bushman family are of a smaller stature. Their complexion is of a leathery yellow or brown color, and the skin becomes greatly wrinkled at an early age. The women possess an enormous development of fat upon the haunches, which is known as steatopiggy. Now, we usually associate that with Hottentots, as Hottentots also have it. So perhaps Winchell was drawing the lines a little differently than we're accustomed to seeing. I'll have a picture of a Hottentot with this presentation. The women possess an enormous development of fat upon the haunches, which is known as steatopiggy, and also a character. Winchell uses the word character for characteristic, which Cuvier, Cuvier styles the most remarkable feature of its organization, the so-called apron, or enormous development of the nymphae, the nymphae being the inner folds of skin of the vagina, together with some other sexual peculiarities. The two sexes, male and female bushmen, beyond these particulars, have but feeble secondary characters for their distinction. Without looking at their genitals, they could hardly be told apart is what Winchell means. Since Winchell discussed those Negroes dwelling along the banks of the Nile River, Negroes with which the ancient Greeks had some contact, here I will cite Diodorus Siculus's opinion of these same beasts from his Library of History, Book 3, which was first published sometime around 36 BC, after describing the cultured people of Ethiopia, who were originally not black, and who had many things in common with the rest of the civilized world, Theodore says, but there are also a great many other tribes of the Ethiopians. Some of them, and he's obviously using Ethiopia as a geographical distinction, in this instance, some of them dwelling in the land laying or lying on both banks of the Nile and on the islands in the river, others inhabiting the neighboring country of Arabia, and still others residing in the interior of Libya. Now, in the Greek view of Africa, Egypt was the land of the Nile River Valley and the Nile Delta and everything east of there was was considered a part of Arabia 
while everything west of there was considered Libya, the African interior also being considered Libya. He goes on to say, the majority of them, and especially those who dwell along the river, the, the parts of the Nile in Ethiopia, are black in color and have flat noses and woolly hair. As for their spirit, they are entirely savage and display the nature of a wild beast. Not so much, however, in their temper as in their ways of living, for they are squalid all over their bodies. They keep their nails very long, like the wild beasts, and are as far removed as possible from human kindness to one another, and speaking as they do with a shrill voice, and cultivating none of the practices of civilized life, as these are found among the rest of mankind, they present a striking contrast when considered in the light of our own customs. So that's how Theodorus Siculus felt about some of those same Negroes, which Winchell describes here. Now, Clifton responds to Winchell's description of the Negroes and offers a further citation. While I don't rate him 100%, here again is an excerpt from Alexander Winchell's book titled Pre-Adamites. I will quote him from pages 156 and 157, chapter 11, titled Race Distinctions. That the brown races constituted widespread populations in Asia and Europe at the time of the dispersion of the posterity of Noah. So Winchell is clearly not considering the brown races to have anything to do with the posterity of Noah seems to be a conclusion established beyond reasonable cavil. Cavil meaning petty objections. I anticipate that the judgment of anthropologists, 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 I'm having a problem with that word, I'm sorry, anthropologists, will yet pronounce them pre-Adamites. The four black races must be regarded as pre-Noachites, meaning people who existed before Noah, whom the flood did not affect. On the strength of all the evidence which concerns the epoch of the brown races, evidence from archaeology, together with the added evidence which I shall offer that they are even descended from, pre-Adamites, meaning they had nothing to do with the Adam of the Bible. Being a studied paleontologist, Professor Winchell understood that the nations of Genesis chapter 10 were all white, and that the Adam of the Bible was certainly white, and also that in the Bible are found only the origins of the white race. For the same reason, before I knew that Winchell even existed, when I first began to write my own concise articles on ancient history and scripture, I began with the race of Genesis 10 to show that it was all white. As we shall discuss briefly, Winchell's work 
was rejected by the religionists of his day. And our view is rejected by religionists today, as the Roman and Eastern Orthodox churches have always taken for granted and have even forced the opinion that all men are alike and all were described in the Adam of the Genesis creation. But to the contrary, all of the Genesis 10 nations can indeed be identified in ancient history and archaeology, and they were all white, in spite of what the mainstream denominations and modern so-called Bible scholars claim. The idea that many different races all came from the three sons of Noah is not only quite childish and contrary to nature, but it is also contrary to scripture and to the God of nature. Continuing once again with Winchell, when we contemplate the black races in their general expression, they appear to be strongly isolated from the rest of mankind. In their anatomical, physiological, and psychic characteristics, we can barely say that a deep-laid basis of human sympathy and likeness exists between them and us, which is exactly what Diodorus Siculus had said about them. But this is so covered up by the more obtrusive details of their being and life that the first impression remains ineradicable that these are creatures which are practically strange to our tastes, our modes of thought, and our very natures. I shall claim for these races, and these are Winchell's words, because I wouldn't, all the characteristics, rights, and responsibilities which pertain to humanity. But I will not affect to ignore the ethnic chasm which splits them from the mass of Noachite, or white, humanity, withdrawn in their color, features, and relative intelligence. They are similarly withdrawn in their geographical positions, shut up for countless ages within the bosoms of vast and impenetrable continents. It seems as if nature conscious of their irre irremediable estrangement. This is what the scripture means by kept, being kept bound in chains of darkness. Nature had contented herself to herd them in regions where they would never mingle in the stir and strife of social and national struggles. When we consider what mankind has achieved, these humble races never enter our thoughts. Never. They have written no history. They have achieved no results for history to record. Their thousands of years outlived, in other words, how long they existed before the white race appeared, are silent and dark and blank. Not an echo of a former generation comes down to our apprehension. If we learn aught of their past, it is through the studies of the white race. 
if we unravel the mystery of their migrations, their affinities, or their origin. It is by studying their zoological characters and their fossil remains, as we investigate the natural history of the horse or the pig, for all which they have achieved, this planet would have remained in the wildness and raggedness of nature. All which they have accomplished would have left our continents in the condition in which they were the home of the Brontotherium, a sort of now extinct rhinoceros, the Sivatherium, a sort of now extinct giraffe, or the Corypidon, which is perhaps a sort of hippopotamus that is now extinct, of middle and earlier tertiary time, meaning basically the dinosaur age, that these Negroes would have left no more of a mark of their existence for future generations than these extinct beasts did because the Negroes aren't any different from the beasts. Winchell says, the breach which separates brutishness, indolence, inertia, and stupidity from the indomitable energy, the flashing intellect, and the heaven-reaching aspirations which have made our planet the abode of civilization, art, and science is a breach which reaches back more than a few centuries, more than a few generations, and must find its origin deep in the ages and in the early divarification or spreading of courses of events which have emerged in our own times. In short, these races, meaning the black races, were pre-Adamic, meaning they had no share in the origin of the Adam of the Bible. Now Clifton responds with another statement, a citation made by Winchell. At the bottom of page 157, Winchell quotes a brief comment by Theodore Parker thusly. The following is Theodore Parker's estimate of the relative importance of the Caucasian race. The Caucasian differs from all other races. He is humane, from which we get the word human. He is civilized and progresses. He conquers with his head as well as with his hand. It is intellect, after all, that conquers, not the strength of a man's arm. The Caucasian has been often master of the other races, never their slave. He has carried his religion to other races, but never taken theirs. That's not quite true, as we have the division between the Canaanites and the Israelites in ancient Palestine, and the surrounding nations who had also adopted the Canaanite idolatry. However, from Winchell's worldly perspective, and from, most likely, Theodore Parker's perspective, the Canaanites were actually Caucasian, which identity Christians should know is not quite true if by Caucasian we mean to refer to Adamic white people. But generally speaking and geographically speaking the Canaanites are just as Caucasian. In history all religions are of Caucasian origin. 
All the great limited forms of monarchies are Caucasian. Republics are Caucasian. All the great sciences are of Caucasian origin. All inventions are Caucasian. Literature and romance come from the same stock. All the great poets are of Caucasian origin. Moses, Luther, Jesus Christ, Zoroaster, Buddha, Pythagoras were Caucasian. No other race can bring up to memory such celebrated names as the Caucasian race. To the Caucasian belong the Arabian, Persian, Hebrew, Egyptian, and all the European nations are descendants of the Caucasian race. And Clifton has a note here that by Arabian should stand the words Ishmaelites and Joktanites before they mixed, before they became Arabic. Of course, even the so-called fallen angels must have originally been Caucasian, in the sense in which Winchell and Parker used the term. So we see that Alexander Winchell shared at least many of our own views on race and scripture as long ago as 1875. Winchell was apparently a polymath, meaning a master of several vocations or sciences, who had graduated from Wesleyan University in Connecticut in 1847 and had his first jobs teaching at seminaries in New Jersey, New York, and Alabama. He then went on to a position of professor of physics and civil engineering at the University of Michigan in 1854. Later, he became professor of geology and paleontology at that same school. For 12 years, he also served as the state geologist of Michigan. In 1872, he became chancellor of Syracuse University in New York, but had to resign two years later after financial problems caused by the Depression of 1873. Working as professor of geology and zoology at Vanderbilt University in 1875, he had to resign in 1878 after controversy following the publication of his book, Adamites and Pre-Adamites, or A Popular Discussion, which turned out to be not so popular after all. He was, however, able to return to the University of Michigan and his former position of Professor of Geology and Paleontology. The full title of the book, which Clifton cites here, is Pre-Adamites, or a demonstration of the existence of men before Adam, together with a study of their condition, antiquity, racial affinities, and progressive dispersion over the earth. In its fourth edition, it was published in 1888 in Chicago by S.C. Griggs and Company, and simultaneously in London by Trubner and Company. Once upon a time, a man could still have a career, even if he spoke truthfully about history, religion, society, and race. Clifton now responds to Winchell with what would turn out to be his final remarks in this series of papers. You will notice that I added 
Ishmael and Jactan in brackets as they were white Adamites. It was only later that Ishmael and Jactan Arabized or mongrelized their bloodlines by mixing with the non-Adamic peoples and, I must add, first with the Canaanites who had mixed with both Kenites and Rephaim. You will notice that Theodore Parker spoke of Zoroaster, Buddha, and Pythagoras as being white. And yes, it is true. Parker also spoke of Confucius being a Chinese philosopher. But I would rather believe that Confucius was a Chinese Jew. There are Chinese Jews. But the main objective of this series of papers is to correctly identify the meaning of the biblical idiom, the beast of the field. The purpose of Clifton's series of papers was multifaceted. First, he wanted to demonstrate that the phrase beast of the field was not a technical term for non-white races, but generally referred to mere animals. And in his earlier portions, he accomplished that. Then he wanted to show that the terms for beast were sometimes used idiomatically to refer to the non-Adamic races. And he also accomplished that. With this in mind, we see that the Bible does not necessarily describe the creation of non-white races, but instead, for want of better terms, sometimes certain supposed people are considered to be beasts, where the terms for beast are used idiomatically as pejoratives, in the same manner in which many other terms for animals are also sometimes applied to people in Scripture. Finally, Clifton sought to demonstrate that there were so-called people from outside of the Adamic society who were, in ancient times, considered hybrids of animal and human, and likened to tailless apes, devils, and satyrs. We would assert that this is also how we must view the non-whites of today, because that is how they were viewed by our most ancient ancestors. Even Rudyard Kipling, in his famous 1899 poem, The White Man's Burden, appropriately viewed the races of Asia as half-devil and half-child, and astutely predicted that the non-whites which the white man was attempting to civilize would ultimately despise and rise up against him, undoing all of the situation, all of the civilization that the white man had created. We see that process happening today before our very eyes. And the Jews celebrates our undoing. As Yahshua Christ explains, in the end, the sheep are separated from the goats as a shepherd normally distinguishes the different species of animals on sight. All of the sheep enter into the kingdom of heaven and all of the goats are cast into the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Without a doubt, their ultimate fate indicates their primordial origin, the source 
of their primordial origin. With this, early Christian writer Justin Martyr agreed. But it is not something which is found in the Greek philosophy that he also followed. This is evident in the second Apology of Justin, chapter 5, How the Angels Transgressed. Justin said, But if this idea takes possession of someone, that if we acknowledge God as our helper, we should not, as we say, be oppressed and persecuted by the wicked. This too I will solve. God, when he had made the world and subjected things earthly to man, and arranged the heavenly elements for the increase of fruits and rotation of the seasons, and appointed this divine law, for these things also he evidently made for man, committed the care of men and of all things under heaven to angels, whom he appointed over them. But the angels transgressed this appointment and were captivated by love of women and begot children who are those that are called demons. And besides, they afterwards subdued the human race to themselves, partly by magical writings and partly by fears and the punishments they occasioned and partly by teaching them to offer sacrifices and incense and libations of things which they stood in need after they were enslaved by lustful passions. And among men they sowed murders, wars, adulteries, intemperate deeds, and all wickedness. Whence also the poets and mythologists, not knowing that it was the angels and those demons who had been begotten by them that did these things to men, and women, and cities, and nations, which they related, ascribed themselves, ascribed them, I'm sorry, the poets, ascribed them to God himself, and to those who were accounted to be his very offspring, and to the offspring of those who were called his brother, Neptune and Pluto, and to the children again of these offspring. For whatever name each of the angels had given to himself and his children, by that name they called them. Here it is evident that to Justin, demons are men born among us, who were the result of the unions between women and these so-called fallen angels. But there is more from the dialogue of Justin, philosopher and martyr, with Trypho, a Jew, from chapter 4, which was titled, The Soul of Itself, cannot see God. Trypho asks, And what do those suffer who are adjudged to be unworthy of this spectacle, said he? And Justin responds, They are imprisoned in the bodies of certain wild beasts, and this is their punishment, so Trypho says. Do they know then that it is for this reason they are in such forms, and that they have committed some sin? Justin responds, quite humbly, I do not think so. So Trypho says, Then these reap no advantage from their punishment, as it seems. Moreover, I would say that they are not punished unless they are conscious of the punishment. And Justin says, No, indeed. 
And Trypho says, Therefore souls neither see God nor transmigrate into other bodies, for they would know that they are so punished, and they would be afraid to commit even the most trivial sin afterwards, but that they can perceive that God exists and that righteousness and piety are honorable. I also quite agree with you, said he. And Justin says, You are right, I replied. So, according to Justin Mater. Not only are demons people, but evil spirits are locked in the bodies of wild beasts, who are also evidently people. As the apostles Peter and Jude both describe those infiltrators among us as natural brute beasts. With this aspect of Justin's teachings, which is certainly Christian and biblical, we wholeheartedly agree. However, the Roman Catholic and the Orthodox Church, which claim to be founded on the so-called Church Fathers, did not at all follow any of the early Church Fathers. So they imagine that beasts can be people, and then they attempt to make Christians out of devils. Contrary to the teachings of Christ, Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy were cuck religions. They were cucked by the Jews even before they started. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.